This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And Taylor, I'm so excited. It's been a little while since we've chatted, and you mentioned you had farm stories, so let's get right <laughs> to it. <laughs> I do. So I, um, I got to experience something very interesting for the first time as it relates to geese. Um, if you've been following along my sordid drama of, you know that um, I've attempted multiple times to give baby geese, the goslings, to the adults to let them raise them. And everybody's like, oh, geese are really wonderful parents. They're great at, you know, hatching. They're great at raising. You just give it to the, give them the babies and they'll just take over. And I have tried and not my geese. Apparently I've had nothing but baby raising drama from my geese, except for Francis. But so she raised four babies by herself, but it was a really weird experience there because those babies never really fully treated her like mom. They didn't follow her around. Like they wanted to be with her. She more just like minded them. It was a really odd sort of, but you know, she kept them alive. So recently um, I hatched six goslings that I wanted to keep for myself. The two American buffs that are my, you know, the ones that I want the most. And then four more of the Francis lookalikes. I'm just hoping that, you know, I'm looking to see, you know, which ones are the the nicest ones and then I'll keep them and then I'll find new homes for the other ones and whatever. And taking care of them is just such a freaking pain because they are so messy. They're, they, they cannot stay out of their water. And so the water gets all over everything. It creates a mess with the whatever their bedding is, whether it's the sawdust pellets or the shavings. And then they poop incessantly. And it's just like, oh, my God, it's just so foul. And I can't keep them in the house for very long because they grow so fast. And then it's like getting them in a safe place outside is just, oh, I just want to be done with it. So they finally it finally got warm enough and they got big enough that I tried putting them in this uh, little like penned area that I have, which is where I normally will put like breeding. Like if I want to want the American buff geese to not be mixing and matching and just have American buff geese babies, I'll put them in there for a few months or whatever. If I'm raising chickens that are still too young to trust, I'll put them in there. And so, um, I, I was like, well, these geese are still a little small, but I'll just give it a try. So I put them in this pen and got them set up with their water and food and everything in a way that they could be left alone by the chickens trying to fly over and steal their food. And uh, after a while, I started noticing that one specific pair of the buff geese, my only guy, Big John, and a new girlfriend, like the one that he who had been all over him all the other times. She just kind of got interested in something else. And now he had this new love, love of his life who would not leave him alone, just followed him everywhere, pecking at him, trying to get his attention. And 
when I when those goslings ended up in that pen, those two separated off from the rest of the flock and they would not leave the pen alone. And they do do that whenever there's new birds out, whether they're little or big or whatever, they have an absolute interest in what's going on, but it's usually territorial and more like, you know, who are you? Why are you here? Curiosity and squawking at them to keep their distance. But in this case, it seemed like they just really wanted those babies. And I noticed that the babies would, wherever those bigger birds would go around the pen, those babies would follow. Like they were trying to get to the big birds. And that was also very unusual for me because in the past, anytime I'd tried to offer the babies, the babies would run away too. Like they had never bonded, right? And so in this instance, the babies were following the adults and the adults would never leave that area of the, of the pen. So I was like, okay, fine. Let's see what happens. So I opened up the pen and let the big ones in. And they were just as happy as could be. And the babies came running to them. So I was like, all right, then let's see how you do. And I turned them loose. And those two have been parenting those six babies ever since. <laughs> Haven't lost any of them yet. Fingers crossed. And they are very good parents. And, you know, if I even try and not even like I'm trying to get close, but if I have to get near them to do something, the parents are like, you know, next down to the ground, wings out, hissing at me like, you stay away from my babies. And I'm like, they are my babies. And don't you forget that. I'm just lending them to you. And, and yeah, so it's just been really fascinating actually having an experience, being able to watch geese parent. And they are fantastic parents. And I'm like, yes, more of this, please. But that was, it was cool. Really, really cool. And I'm quite enjoying just, well, A, not having to do the taking care of myself, but also B, just watching this family unit and how they they behave and interact. It's the first time I've gotten to see that. So it's been fun. That is a big success. You've been, you've been wrestling with, with this whole concept for quite some time. Yeah, I guess maybe, you know, that the hormones kicked in. Like this is the first time that it's been a, a a male, female, like a mom and dad pair, right? Because Frances was just a single goose when she did it. And so to be able to watch this co-parenting thing and maybe, you know, it was just right. It was like the right season. So the parenting hormones were there and those two had finally decided that they were going to be the couple. So the parenting hormones were there. It just all came together. I was really happy about it. Very cool. So um, in preparation for this week's podcast, Taylor's been busy with other things. So it fell to me to come up with <laughs> an idea <laughs> for this week's podcast. And I had an idea. I poked around, found some source material. What I wanted to do, because we've been talking a little bit about movies and, and TV shows over the last, well, so far this year, we've, we've spent a little bit of time doing that. Uh, and the fact that there are storytelling lessons that you can learn from these, from other mediums, uh, other media. Uh, I was looking for articles on Marvel's storytelling techniques, and I found a really good one from 2022. It's not actually an article. It's just a series of points with pictures of characters. And so I wanted to have Taylor riff off some of these points to, to get, her, get her feeling on some of these. The title of the article is 20 Storytelling Lessons We Can Learn from Marvel, it was posted on Medium by uh, the the name of the author is Mission, and that's the only that's the only 
name that's there. I'll post the link to the article in the spreadsheet so you or in the spreadsheet in the show notes so that you can at least see the images that are there. But as I went through this, I was astonished at the number of points that I saw that were really succinctly worded in here that we have spent time talking about. So I'm going to go quickly to number 20 because this is not something that's succinct and uh, there's not like an easy riff from from Taylor on this, but I I felt like it'd be a good place to start. And uh, their point number 20 was plan carefully before you begin writing, know where your story is going, choose every word with care. I mean, that's like three different things, but the whole idea of planning planning carefully before you begin writing, that's something that we have circled around multiple times. Yes, it is. And knowing where your story is going and choosing everywhere with word with care also, um, those are going to be difficult for anybody who's a pantser or, you know, writing by the seat of your pants. But I think you can expand on that, that you spend a lot of time thinking about the story, even if you're not like making outlines and stuff. And you spend a lot of time um, I immersed in your characters' dramas or ordeals. And so that also would count as planning, I suppose, even if you're not planning it carefully before you begin writing. But I think Marvel actually, it makes a really good um, example, a good baseline here, because it's it's easy to I don't want to say mock Marvel because this franchise has grown so much and I mean I love good superhero movie as much as anyone I've seen most of the Marvel movies but I find myself starting to get a little bit weary with them because it just goes on there's always just another one but that they have been able to maintain their franchise for so long and that it's so big, it the reason they've been able to do that is far more than just because of it being superheroes or because they're it, they come from a a fan base that bringing the the comic fan base to the movies. They have been so successful because of the way they tell their stories and because they're so interconnected, which means they have been very, very carefully planned out years in advance, even for the potentially movies that they didn't necessarily know were coming, that were maybe like a twinkle in their eye that they might want to do way down the line, but they've already have them in mind of where those character trajectories are so that when they're writing the current ones, there's nothing in the current ones that would violate what's coming, but also that they're dropping Easter eggs along the way as well. And that sort of unification of the story is huge for that level of continuity. And that's something that I wish I would have known more about when I first started writing I I really try to be mindful of it now when I'm writing is where the stories could potentially go from here. And am I blocking myself, putting myself into corners that I won't be able to write myself out of? Am I limiting myself and just making sure that the current work is not going to interfere with continuity that may come down the line? Because now I understand how how much of a connection that creates with 
an audience that becomes invested in the characters. So there's nothing I can say different than what they've said. I can only expound on it in because they're right. That that is yay. Awesome advice. And yes, and Marvel is a perfect example of it. I wonder how many authors have planned three book series or six book series and then found, oh, these are way more successful than I thought they were going to be. So I just want to keep going. Um, and, and then, of course, there are the authors who who plan on doing a single book that's wildly successful. And then it's like, OK, this is going to be a series. Um, and the way you were talking about Marvel, it's like they can't possibly have envisioned some of this stuff that, that's been going on. But the, the idea of being able to leave doors open so that there is room to continue the story uh, seems like it, it, it would be important from an author's planning standpoint. I, I think also, though, that because they have so much source material to draw from, that it's not like us as authors, storytellers, novelists, where we are creating from scratch and we have to envision it all. They're coming from it with that's those stories already been told. They know what's out there. And then it's a matter of, well, what are we going to do with it? How closely are we going to stick to the original material? Are we going to, in what ways are we going to alter it for um, a broader audience? So they have that ability to look at the whole because it's already out there. Whereas with us, we're having to create from scratch. And so obviously, if you can look at the whole, you are at a great advantage over somebody who's trying to envision it from the beginning. So it's not really a fair apples to apples comparison, but there's still value or lessons that can be drawn from it regardless. Okay, here's something that I don't believe we've ever talked about before. And I this is something that Marvel does. I think Disney does it as well. Um, and that is this in in this post, it's point seventeen. Appeal to your target audience with fitting pop culture references. I don't think that's something that you do in your writing, is it? Very rarely, and that's because I have no pop culture <laughs> reference. I was born and raised in a cult. And so pop culture for me has always been a challenge that I don't get what people are talking about. I spend so much time looking things up to, to be able to keep up with it. So because of that, I don't really have a lot to drop in for, for pop culture references myself. At least I didn't before. Now that I've been quote unquote alive for you know <laughs> a while now, there's more to draw from because at least from the time that I was quote unquote born, in other words, entered the real world, um, from that point forward, I was able to start becoming aware of these references, but they're off, they're anachronistic to my own age. Like all the things that I should know as pop culture references, I don't, but I know the ones from the younger generations coming up behind me because that's when I entered the real world. But if I did have that ability, I would absolutely be using it because it's correct. It it creates this sort of sense of, oh, I know you, I get you. And it draws your audience in in a way that they feel that they're a part of it. I never read the book um, Ready Player One. I saw the mm -hmm. movie, which I really loved. But from what I understand, that 
the the written story itself is just absolutely filled with pop culture references from the 80s and that was part of what made that that created this massive fan base for it was that connection of all the people who grew up in that era and knew exactly what the story was referencing and and you do see that in the movie too somewhat there's a lot of uh, historical pop culture knowledge that the characters have to know in order to solve their puzzles and whatever. And that that's like an extreme example of using pop culture references and stories and how it can connect with an audience. But I think that being able to do it even on a smaller level definitely um, has an impact because it automatically seats you as an audience member in that world of like, hey, I'm a part of this world where I find like if not not all stories are um, conducive to pop culture references, I, I, I imagine that science fiction would be almost impossible to do that with because you're dealing with usually future or other worlds or whatever. But if if you're in a genre that pop culture isn't really applicable or appropriate, but you're still within this same universe, an alternative is to find some other quirky niche specialty that your character is knowledgeable about and throw come, come back to that a few times along the way. Not in a way to like, quote unquote, establish your character, but more that it's just, it creates this sort of uniqueness about the character that they have this level of niche knowledge that isn't even necessarily pertinent to the story itself. It's just part of who they are and part of how they relate to the world. It often can stand in for pop culture references because it's so uniquely interesting and it almost in some way fills that same gap. And so sometimes I do do that on a minor scale because of how weirdly varied my own knowledge base is. If I find something that will fit a particular character, I'll draw back to that. And usually it's a, even though it's specialized, it's a common enough thing that people will get it. Like, okay, um, maybe a character is super hyper-focused on strategy, for example. And so they like quote Sung Tzu, Sun Tzu, or maybe they understand, you know, aerodynamics in such a way, in a certain way. And so they bring the subject of aerodynamics into an explanation or the way that they're constantly coming back to how this thing that is happening relates to their own way of thinking. And that's really what pop culture references are. They're like little pins on a board that mark you in time and connection, right? So if you can find something like that, that maybe the overall populated, overall audience might be quasi sort of aware of, but not have that deep understanding of, then it allows you to do the same thing differently. And that's to connect, to connect with your audience on, on a emotion. It's it's an emotional level because you're connecting with life experience really is what it is. That's a really clever way of going about it. You mentioned science fiction and, and how it would be difficult in using it in science fiction. I've read several science fiction books where they're able to get current day pop culture things in 
through the use of an AI who learned things by going back into, you know, 2020 and gathering information and then just going forward from there. So the, you know, some snarky artificial intelligence can throw in the pop culture references that the the characters may not get at all, but the readers would get. That is, I have actually seen that done, um, not in books, but on screen. And it is always hilarious when it happens. And it does absolutely trigger the same exact connection response. And that's a brilliant example. All right. So here's one. If I was really clever, I would be able to reference the 97 episodes where we talked about this. But I I do want to at least get this out. This is point number two. Get inside your hero's head and figure out what motivates them to do the things they do. Have we talked about that before? Um, Like, you know, it seems like sometimes that's all we talk about. (laughs) It is. I, I can't emphasize enough. I've actually been thinking about it a lot lately because the whole hack the craft program has been on my mind a lot. Uh, one of the issues that I run up against that I know I'm going to run up against is finding a way to structure so much content in a way that makes it feel um, organized, organic, and easy to follow. And I just keep coming back to the issue of character. It's like character is everything. It's everything in storytelling. And in order to create characters that are believable, real, but even more that your own audience is able to connect with, the only way that you can do that is by truly understanding the character and figuring out what motivates them to do the things they do. Like I, I cannot highlight enough how big that is, but finding a way to break it down into practical examples is where the challenge is because it is so much of everything. All right, and uh, we'll do one more because we're, we're running close on time. But this, I, I think this will be an interesting for you, an interesting interesting one for you to to talk about just because of your background and the background of some of the characters in the stories that you write. And this is point five in this post. Give your hero a distinct worldview that viewers can compare and contrast with their own. And so certainly in the case of Monroe and Jack and Jill, they each had very distinct worldviews that are, let's say, not perfectly relatable to, to average people. That is true. And that comes with a cost, though, because there's a difference between distinct and way off the map. And distinct, I would say, could mean unique to that person, like individualized, right? But if viewers can't, if if there's, I say viewers because that's how that question was framed, but you say your audience, do not have a tether, if you're not able to provide a tether from your individualized character's worldview to something that your audience may or may not have experienced, then there is nothing there for them to compare and contrast with their own because they're so far apart. So when you create a character with their own individualized worldview, which you must, for the characters to feel authentic and real and not cookie cutter and generic. When you do that, 
the further away from average reality that they get, the more important it is to also provide some kind of tether to anchor the readers and allow your audience to connect those differences with their own life. So in Monroe's instance, I did not know this at the time that I was writing her, but there is a very strong connection. She creates a very strong connection with women who have experienced abuse at the hands of mostly like domestic partners or even violent um, physical attacks on their body from strangers. This character who has experienced that, who then goes on to become a, I wouldn't say a warrior, but she is in a way, uh, who defends not herself, but also others who are in need of defense. That's not what these stories are really about, but it's part of how she reacts to the world. It That aspect of her, her she's so different, and yet there's that tether that those who have experienced trauma hugely connect to and relate to her because of that connection. But even though the the real life implications are so completely diametrically opposite each other, there's that tether that connects. And so in the sense of like, let's say Jack and Jill, they are so extreme that it's really hard for people to even relate to them. But a lot of people can relate to that sense of being an outsider, a sense of not fitting in. A lot of people especially understand what it's like to deal with dysfunctional family dynamics. That's the tether that connects these very extreme characters with their very <laughs> way off on the end, individualized worldviews with real life that readers are able to like bridge that that gap and then there's also similar but different an instance of when for example i'm writing about foreign locations that an audience the audience may have never visited possibly have never seen i'm i do make an effort to make comparisons to something else in that particular character's life that the audience might be more inclined to be able to relate to. So if Monroe or one of the characters is in a place that is very foreign to the average audience member, they might relate it to a time that they spent in a place that is less foreign. You know, it reminded her of a cross of, you know, this and that reminded her of that time that she was wherever. And I try to be subtle about it. But what I really am doing is dropping comparisons in that would allow the audience to be able to feel or visualize or immerse themselves, become part of the scene in a way that they couldn't. And the intent of it is to do so without just relying on description. Because description is boring, description doesn't really tell you anything. But if you can relate those details to an experience that might be a little bit more common, like not everybody has experienced snow, but everybody has experienced, most people have experienced some form of cold, 
just to what level? You know, not everybody has experienced being out in the middle of nowhere where you can't, where there's no electricity and no light pollution, but most people know what it's like to go through a blackout. So finding a way to connect one extreme experience to something that's a little more common and bridge those is a way to feed the audience that tether that allows them to compare and contrast to their own experience that could be missing if you just only go with the extreme worldview and don't provide anything else. It might, it might be too far for the audience to even relate. Okay, that's a great answer. Um, there's I, there's one other that I want that, that I want um, just to to hear your thoughts on. I I think we've talked about this, but not in great detail. And I'm I'm actually going to paraphrase the way it's written. It's it's written. Point number four is written. Only give your characters lines that they can deliver. And the image below there is is of the Incredible Hulk, uh, referring to someone as a puny god. So uh, that's that's the example that they're giving. But I, I, I would rephrase that to read, give your characters lines that only they can deliver. And that's a little trickier. And I know that, that, that when in some of the work that you and I have done together on, on my stuff, it's you emphasize over and over again how important it is to get the dialogue right um, for a given character so that that character sounds consistently like themselves. And so these kind of clever lines that only, in this case, only the Hulk could deliver or only this one character in your book could deliver um, are just great assets to a story. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a slight uh, twist on that when it comes to novelization because with movies, dialogue is everything in terms of what's driving character conflict, what's like it's the only way you really understand the character because we're not inside their thoughts. So dialogue is where all the conflict, drama, everything else happens in a movie. So that creates a level of uh, emphasis or weight on dialogue that, is far more um, important than in books. It, it's it's not an equal apples to apples balance because in in books we also we rely a lot more heavily on um, inner dialogue and the narrative and everything to get a lot of that across. So you have a little bit more leeway in novelization than you do in in movies when it comes to the exact words that are coming out of your character's mouth. It, every word counts on screen, every single word. And in books, you have a lot more room for error to expand or whatever. So I'd say that it's true that you give your characters lines that only they can deliver, but that's a lot the the line of where that where that line is drawn is a lot clearer when you're dealing with a movie than when you are dealing with a book. And so because that line does get blurry in books, I would really sort of turn the focus a little bit more to say, give your characters lines that are authentic to that character, because there may be somebody else in a book 
the book version of the story that could technically deliver the same line. The goal is to make it as if only your character could be the one to deliver it. So you to be judicious and careful in whose mouth you're putting those words and to make sure that when you give them those words, that they are something that, that and that it relates to that forcing words into their mouth because the plot requires them to say those things. All righty. So that is it for this week's show. Thank you to Marvel for this uh, source material material and, and mission who wrote this post back in 2018. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Taylor, for your, your thoughts on, on these various posts. And we will be back with you again next week. Thanks for being here, guys. See you next week.